Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the director of the Peace Research Institute Oslo. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to this event. We are honored today to have Sviatlana Tsikhanouskaya give an open lecture on what the war in Ukraine means for the fight for democracy in Belarus. Sviatlana Tsikhanouskaya is a human rights activist and leader of the democratic movement in Belarus. In the summer of 2020, protesters poured onto the streets of Minsk to protest the announcement of a highly contentious election result that propelled Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko to a sixth five-year term in office. The protests were met with brutal repression, including reports of widespread torture and detained protesters. Sviatlana has played a leading role in non-violently challenging Lukashenko and the Belarusian authorities, calling both for fair elections and an end to violence against those demonstrating against the abuses of the current regime. Launching her presidential campaign um, uh, after her husband, uh, Sergei uh, Tikhanovsky, was arrested just days after declaring his own intention to run, Sviatlana became the candidate of a united opposition and has subsequently spearheaded the Coordination Council, an initiative aimed at securing a democratic and peaceful transition to power in Belarus. On February 24, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the invasion of Ukraine. This is the first full-scale invasion of European countries since the Second World War. It was launched in part from the territory of Belarus and with the support of Alexander Lukashenko. Thousands of lives have already been lost on both sides. Several Ukrainian cities lie in ruins, and millions of Ukrainians are internally displaced or have been forced to flee the country. At the same time, repression within Russia is becoming more acute as Putin clamps down on dissenting voices and the free flow of information. Prio researchers are bringing their expertise to bear on this situation, contributing to the public debate and to our understanding of the war and its many repercussions with incisive analysis. These contributions are available from the Prio blog and our podcast and through numerous opinion pieces. But we also contribute to the public debate through the means of open meetings and lectures. A few week, weeks back, we hosted the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grande, for a discussion of the world's refugee situation with a particular focus on the unfolding refugee crisis in Ukraine. And today, we are exceptionally pleased to facilitate a lecture with one of Europe's most important pro-democracy figures, focusing on how the war in Ukraine is affecting the situation in Belarus, and how the pro-democracy movement in the country is reacting to the war. Sviatlana's open lecture will be followed by comments by Pavel Bayev, research professor and PRIO's foremost expert on Russian foreign and security policy. He will comment on developments in Belarus and the impacts that they have on the anti-war sentiments in Russia. After the presentations, I will be asking questions that are prepared by PRIO researchers, but it will not be possible to ask questions from the audience. Before inviting Sviatlana to the podium, I would like to ask the audience that you please remain seated after the end of the event so that Sviatlana can be escorted out of the room. And then a last piece of practical information, the emergency exits are at the back of the room where you entered, but also then to the left at the end of this corner. Then Sviatlana, the 
floor is yours, and we are delighted that you're here and look very much forward to what you have to say. Good afternoon, participants, good afternoon, friends of Belarus. I'm deeply thankful to the Peace Research Institute for holding this discussion. Discussions like this help to put Belarus back on international agenda. I am not a professional politician, as you know, uh, but I already learned that in the world of politics, the attention span is short. And we don't have any time to waste because every single day means more sufferings and more victims. I was in Kristiansand yesterday where I spoke uh, at the European conference organized by Council of Europe. This morning I met with Foreign Minister Anniken Hitfeld. We spoke about the UN Security Council, sanctions and assistance to civil society. This afternoon, I will speak with Prime Minister uh, Jonas Garstorte. Norway is our strategic ally, and I hope our relations will always be warm and open as they are now, especially after democratic changes in Belarus. At every meeting, I speak about why it's so crucial to support Belarus, but also Ukraine. The fates of Belarusian and Ukrainian people uh, are interdependent now. We in Belarus understand that there will be no free Belarus without free Ukraine. And without free Belarus, there will be no safe Ukraine. Yesterday, I had a chance to join a solidarity rally for Ukrainians here in Oslo. Ukrainian diaspora is holding a rally in front of Stortengate every single day. It warms my heart to see so many Belarusians and Ukrainians united in the protest against the war and for freedom. Many Belarusians who fled the repressions in 2020 found a safe place in Ukraine. After the war has started, they stayed there. They volunteer in hospitals, deliver humanitarian aid, and defend Ukraine alongside ordinary Ukrainians. You know, it's a historical moment for Belarus, Ukraine, and the entire world. Political order in Europe now is like melted iron, and it's up to us which form it will take in the end. Our actions right now will define the history of Europe for the century to come. And we are not talking about something impossible. When I hear that something is impossible, I think about Stanislav Shushkevich, the first leader of independent Belarus, who passed two days ago. In 1991, he brought together the leaders of Soviet Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine in his residence and signed agreements about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It turns out that destroying a huge empire could be so simple, with a stroke of pen, and we are proving wrong what we are considered obvious before. Lukashenko's regime, which seemed to be invincible, demonstrated its impotence when armless people woke up from many years of coma and took to the streets. Putin's army, which seemed to be so powerful a few months ago, turned out to be a big fake when it confronted fearless Ukrainians. For me, it all started in 2020. In the August 2020 election, I ran against the dictator Lukashenko after my husband was jailed for declaring his candidacy. In the months of protests that followed the stolen election, my people tried to break free from dictatorial chains. Up to 1.5 million people took part in peaceful protests. It's a lot for 9 million Belarus. Belarusians surprised themselves, but also frightened both dictators. Putin and Lukashenko underestimated the strength of our people. 50,000 people have been detained. Hundreds of thousands fled. Thousands passed through torture. 
My husband Sergei, just one among thousands of political prisoners, was sentenced to 18 years in prison, almost two of which he has spent in a solitary cell already. Some experts believe that the current Putin's revanchist war began in 2020 with mass terror in Belarus. Lukashenko wouldn't have survived without Putin. The Kremlin has provided Lukashenko with propagandists from Russia today. Military units of Rosgvardia were actually stationed on the border with Belarus, ready to be de deployed to rescue the droning dictator. Lukashenko is still paying his debts. He allowed Belarus to be used as, as a staging ground for the attack on Ukraine. Russia moved in and occupied our country as Lukashenko has already lost control. We now understand that the crackdown on Belarus civil society, the destruction of free media, alternative voices, trade unions, human rights defenders were all a preparation for the occupation and for the war against Ukraine. But the dictators failed to suppress our movement. Despite the brutal repressions, the protest movement continued underground, and after two years, it is still there. Two months ago, Belarusians united in an unprecedented resistance against the war. On February 27th, for the first time since 2020, tens of thousands took to the streets across the country to protest against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our hacktivists hack government websites. Volunteers hand out self-printed newspapers. And initiatives formed by the mothers of soldiers work with the military. And we can also claim to victories in, in this war. First, our country didn't become a place where the Russian army feels safe. Since February, Belarusian partisans have conducted more than 80 acts of sabotage on the railways. Thanks to their bravery, Russians couldn't supply their troops and transport weapons through the Belarusian-Ukrainian border. Their attack to capture Kiev from the north stalled. And the second victory. Belarus army refused to enter Ukraine, despite the attempts to direct it into the war. And it's also the achievement of our people, of mothers, and of course of officers who refused to follow this criminal order and made all possible this wouldn't happen. We made our stance clear. We are against the war and the dictator supporting it. Lukashenko probably planned to parade with Putin in the center of Kiev on May 9th but made a strategic miscalculation. He became a war accomplice and dragged our country into the war. He put the interests of Kremlin higher than interests of Belarus. Some of you watched uh, maybe this, his interview to Associated Press yesterday, and I see it as a desperate attempt to escape responsibility. He tries to switch from essanist to firefighter. No way. The West shouldn't buy this again. We must learn that dictators cannot be re-educated or appeased. We also see attempts to start the exchange several political prisoners for lifting all sanctions. We cannot allow the people of Belarus or the political prisoners to be used as bargaining chips. We don't want to release of uh, 10, 100, or 300 hostages. We want the release of all political prisoners immediately, without conditions. Moreover, all criminal cases must be closed, so everyone can get back home safely, those who are in prison and those who are in exile. As I said in the beginning, every single day means more suffering, for the population of Ukraine, living in fear of Russian shelling, for political prisoners in Belarus, for ordinary citizens living in a state of terror. I know that sanctions are not the silver bullet, but they do really work. 
Under the pressure of sanctions, regime is making mistakes. And I hope very soon it will realize that it must release political prisoners and start talking to people. Until it happened, I'm calling on the international community to keep pressure strong and not recognize the regime. Also, you may ask, how then do you fight if you have no weapons? The fact is that back in 2020, we chose a peaceful uh, path of struggle, and we try to stick to it. We believe in power of words, the power of persuasion, the power of diplomacy. Perhaps this path is longer, but we hope it will bring more sustainable changes in the longer run. You don't see protests in the streets, but big changes are already happening in our society. First of all, Belarusians realized that their fate is in their hands, and no one would make changes for them. Hundreds of NGOs were forced to flee Belarus in 2020 and 2021, but they regrouped and are active again. Many media restored their work. The second is that the energy in the society is accumulating at the moment, and there is so much energy, energy is waiting to be unleashed. In our exile communities, you can see it, uh, which have seen an explosion in art, creativity, and innovative technology to combat repressions. Third, the immunity to tyranny is being developed within the society. Even those who served the system for years realized that this policy leads to a dead end. Belarusians will never again accept the dictatorship in our country. And fourth, Belarus's national identity is strengthening. Every day, as more Belarusians learn their language, they discover their true history. More and more Belarusians are making their choice in favor of democracy, human rights, and the European future. You know, we are now writing the crucial chapters in the history books for generations to come. And the bravery of Ukrainians and Belarusians will serve as an inspiration for our children. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for that very inspirational lecture, Sviatlana. Then we will have comments from Pavel Bayev. Please, Pavel. Thank you. I am feeling privileged with this opportunity to deliver short comments to your presentation, Madam President. And I have no doubt addressing you this way, because in my book, you are the legitimately elected president of the courageous people of Belarus. I hope very much to see in the near future your state visit to this country. But in the meanwhile, we have to do with the reality which is difficult and dark. But it is too late to be pessimistic. And I am very impressed with the positive spin on your, of your presentation. It is indeed uh, a moment when we need to invest in our future. I'll, in, another impression I have is how compressed in, re in recent weeks and days and years the events are in, in our world. And they're compressed differently depending on where you look. You look from the far side of the Atlantic and you see the controversy of Trump presidency and then the epidemic and then the disaster in Afghanistan and then the war in Ukraine. And you look at the broad and disorderly post-Soviet space and you see revolution in Armenia, and the election of Zelensky as a, as a president, and the revolution in Belarus, and the turmoil in Kazakhstan, and the war in Ukraine. And you look into Russia and you see Putin's shameful attempt at revising the constitution, an attempt at poisoning of Alexei Navalny, 
and his return to Russia and his imprisonment and the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine makes a point where all perspectives come together. And we now can reflect on these events back and see how it happened, what has led to that. And in particular, reflecting on the revolution in Belarus, we see how it made the two dictators indeed scared, how it made Putin desperate and Lukashenko dependent, how it compelled Putin to make this decision to invade Ukraine, which was on the, on the path of building democracy, and it was an intolerable challenge. And how Lukashenko became accomplice, and because of that, Belarus is treated as aggressor state and is sanctioned, which feels very wrong, but in fact is, uh, is necessary. Reflections are only as good as they tell us where to go and how to stop the war, how to end it. And I have to confess I don't believe in these negotiations. And I also don't believe in the long war of attrition. Russia doesn't have stomach for that. Something will break. And you're looking at what can possibly break, and you probably can conclude that the weakest link in this war posture is Belarus. I think it is entirely necessary for Putin to preserve this single ally he has. But Belarus is definitely strongly as you have said, against the war. And it has proven itself to be against the war, and I don't really have much to add to what you are saying about the feelings in Belarus society. I will probably add only one thing, Putin has a strong emphasis, and the thing is about Belarusian army. Yes, you are right, the army effectively refused to fight. It was, it was training together with the Russian army, it was indoctrinated the same way, but when the moment came, uh, the army understood that it's, it's just wrong. And much the same way as the army generally stayed clear from suppressing the protests in Belarus, it might be an important force in changing the, uh, the, uh, the course of history. It is very difficult to connect with this force, certainly. And I don't have recommendations for that, but I hope that this army now have a very different example in front of it. Not the Russian army with its kind of, uh, doctrines and, and its tanks, but the Ukrainian army, which finds a lot of strength, not in Western support, but in support of, the, of its population. And it's, uh, it's going for victory. So one connection can be through that. And an important person in forging this connection and probably in hitting on this weakest link is President Zelensky. You know, incredible uh, statesman he turned out to be. Uh, really leader of his country. And he's also emerged as one of the leaders of the free world, as a moral authority. And his word carries a lot of weight. We all watched him speaking to the parliament of Norway, and I think, don't think anybody can, be, uh, can uh, be unimpressed with his performance. So in the very near future, I hope to see not only a meeting, but also an alliance between President Zelensky and President Tikhanovsky. Thank you. Thank you both. We will be. We have pre prepared a few questions, and I think we could probably keep this going for a very long time because there are so many different aspects of this uh, this uh, broader issue uh, that uh, that we could address. But I would like to to start out, uh, Svetlana, with with a question uh, that I think is on everyone's mind uh, these days, and looking frantically for roads towards democracy and securing democracy uh, in Europe. Um, and if and when Belarus uh, hopefully democratizes in the future, do you think it is most likely to come as a result of a popular uprising uh, or through some kind of negotiated process with uh, elements or parts of the current regime? Is there any way there? Or do we have to opt for something entirely different? Look, I have to say that Every uprising in every country will lead to dialogue. 
with, in our case, it will be dialogue between representatives of the regime and democratic forces. Uh, it's uh, look, it's uh, almost impossible, you know, to get rid of the regime just with with the uprising. It's impossible, and. Uh, we, since the beginning, we have been calling for dialogue with the regime. Uh, but conditions for this dialogue were very simple and clear. Release all political prisoners, stop violence, and let's discuss future free and fair elections. So for sure it will be, and, and we tried a lot to uh, involve, uh, to use OSCE platform for organizing this dialogue. I suppose that many consultations have been held with, uh, through different organizations, you know, trying to, uh, I don't know, to talk to persuade regime that uh, there is no other way out of this situation, uh, only communicate with people. And, uh, you know, the uh, regime was silenced too uh, at that moment. Now, uh, I think it was a huge mistake. And now uh, Lukashenko and his cronies uh, like trapped much more than it was before. Uh, but, of course, we are still continuing to call uh, for dialogue uh, when all the conditions are fulfilled. And in any way, has the war in Ukraine uh, changed the strategy that the pro-democracy pro movement in, in uh, Belarus is pursuing uh, and in any ways uh, led to fundamental changes in the opinion uh, of the uh, Belarus public uh, in a way that you think is you know, um, leading to, to shifts in, in, uh, in your strategies? No. Even after 2020, Lukashenko, uh, maybe Lukashenko's support was, I don't know, 15, 17 percent. Uh, and uh, of course, now when uh, he dragged our country into this war, when he became a uh, accomplice uh, to Putin, when he became, this regime uh, became a pariah uh, to the whole world, even those who have been supporting him, they see that uh, Lukashenko uh, leads our country to nowhere. And um, we feel how, we see how Lukashenko is insecure in this new obstacle because he rotates people around himself all the time. He fires uh, ministries. He fired his personal doctor. He fired um, uh, leadership of banks, several banks. So he doesn't know whom to trust. He uh, doesn't tr trust his closest um, environment. And um, so even those who were loyal to him, now they realize what's going on. But I have to say that those people who are around Lukashenko, they it's not about loyalty to Lukashenko, it's about fear, because all this vertical of power is based on uh, 27 years of, of scaring of people. So almost all the people around Lukashenko, they will immediately, like, swift uh, the attitude, the position when uh, real changes will come. So, um, you know, as, as for usual people, of course, they uh, don't support the war and hence they don't support uh, uh, Lukashenko. That's true. Thank you. I, uh, and you made reference to, to the, uh, the interview in Associated Press that Lukashenko did, uh, I believe, yesterday or, or the day before, mm -hmm. where he was, uh, was referring to the war, not, not the military operation, which is interesting, uh, I guess, in itself, and, uh, and trying to uh, distance himself more from, from the war, uh, saying that he was seeking out peaceful mm -hmm. solutions. Um, and and uh, and you also said in your uh, lecture that uh, that we shouldn't believe uh, that this is sincere, of course. But what is the audience? Is this primarily an international audience, or is he also responding now to what he sees as a mounting pressure within uh, Belarus? Is is this is this primarily meant to react to to a an increasingly critical opinion uh, or public in Belarus? Or do you see this as a way to try to put himself sort of internationally as the middleman? Uh, no, Lukashenko has never uh, had intention to justify himself in front of Belarusian people because people in Belarus, nobody for him. So he wants to justify himself in front of international society. He again wants to play this seesaw uh, between uh, West and Russia as he used to do for many, many years. And... Uh, now, when he changed his rhetoric, actually, he wants like to uh, untie his uh, small boat from big Russian ship, uh, and uh, just to uh, he, just to look uh, less uh, 
uh, terrible uh, on the background mm. of uh, Putin. You know, may maybe I could be forgiven, you know, I'm not so bad, you know, uh, this type. And we don't have to be fooled like this. Uh, he did this many, many times, and uh, uh, he was appeased somehow. He was appeased by um, a democratic society, but uh, not this time. I, you know, I communicated with all, uh, with the president, prime minister, so I'm communicating, I'm trying to, for them to understand the reality. And... Uh, uh, Look, I'm promised everywhere that nobody is going to uh, legalize him, nobody is going to recognize him, and he's, as I said, prior to the uh, world. And I say that, look, we, we want dialogue, but there shouldn't be any dialogue behind uh, Belarusian's backs. No, no negotiations without Belarusians. That's our main uh, request, and uh, I hope that uh, uh, democratic countries uh, are fulfilling their promises. So, Pavel, I, I want to to uh, to just uh, challenge you a little bit on, on what kind of reactions that that is untying of the little boat uh, will uh, will mean uh, for for Putin's perhaps sinking ship, if we want to maintain that metaphor. Uh, how we, how is uh, how is this? Uh, likely to spur a reaction uh, on the Russian side? Well, the ship may be not as yet quite sinking. I think Putin is trying to keep it on course, but it is a very inflexible course. Hmm. Uh, there is no way for him, uh, no way for, uh, for maneuvering even of limited scale like Lukashenko is trying to, uh, to perform. There will be a military parade in Moscow uh, on, May, on May 9, Lukash, Lukashenko, for what I know, is not coming. Putin will be there alone. Uh, how he would uh, try to use this occasion, which is a sacred occasion uh, in Russia and Belarus and even in Ukraine, which Putin turned from uh, a day of remembrance of huge sacrifice into a celebration of militarism. How he would try to use this occasion remains to be, uh, to be seen. But I suspect he is coming to a moment when he needs to do some, uh, something extraordinary. Uh, as for uh, Lukashenko's behavior, I think Lukashenko is very, is very, has very keen political instincts. And he knows that situation now is principally different from the year 2020, because back then, Putin had his army on the borders of Belarus, Rosgvardia and other elements. He was kind of in a position of power. And now the power is spent. And now all the, all the, all the power he has is uh, f uh, fighting in Ukraine, and there is nothing he can really spare uh, if uh, Belarus uh, goes its own way. So that's why I think it's really, it's really a weak link in this, uh, in this war posture, because Putin has no instruments uh, left uh, to enforce his, his will on Belarus. I don't believe in Lukashenko's maneuvering, but they might be opening space for, uh, for other forces in Belarus suddenly to uh, re-energize, to, uh, to proceed from this uh, direct resistance and derailing uh, the trains into taking uh, more uh, mass action into showing their strength again. So Svetlana, after the protests in, in 2020, um, we didn't see any mass defection of members of the security uh, forces in Belarus, even though there were you know, signs that, uh, that, uh, that there were someone leaving. But now there are news stories about people deserting from the army and even Belarusian uh, soldiers fighting on the Ukrainian side. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned yourself the, uh, the acts of sabotage within Belarus. Um, do you see that this is, is this is this a shift compared to where we've been previously and what is the implication going to be for the popular resistance in Belarus of the, of the increased perhaps defections and, uh, and uh, changes within the security forces in Belarus. Is this, do you think this is an accurate picture, that things are changing and that this could have implications? Look, for uh, Belarusians, things are not changing. We live uh, in this resistance for a year and a half. Maybe you can't see it because uh, there are no beautiful pictures of rallies. 
But just imagine that uh, we live like in gulag, if you know this word. We live in constant repressions. And people know that they can be detained for uh, comment on YouTube channel, for wrong color of socks, for uh, yellow-blue ribbon in the hair. Of course, uh, our movement went to underground. And when, after the war has started, we saw hundreds of thousands of people on the streets again, uh, it surprised us at all. Because our movement is like horizontal one. We don't say people what to do. We're communicating with Belarusians every day with different groups of population, but we like, didn't ask, go against the war. It's people themselves, because uh, people in Belarus and people in exile understand that uh, it was our obligation to show our attitude to this war. People knew that they will be detained. Uh, 1.5, uh, people have been detained at that day. Lukashenko was sure that civil society is ruined. Some voices like uh, are heard from exile, but uh, in Belarus, nobody is left. And this uprising again, it was shock for him. And then this acts of sabotage, uh, it frightened him a lot. And uh, we, every day we, we work on uh, changes in Belarus. Uh, we have working movement. The leadership is in exile, but workers on their enterprises. They know how to block um, um, how to block some systems for enterprise don't work, but we are waiting. We need to wait for, we need, not, not to wait, we need to be prepared for that particular moment where we will be able to uprise again. But people have to understand that next uprising, it will not lead to uh, new political prisoners, you know, some un un uncertainty. It will be last fight when we will be able to get rid of dictatorship. National-wide strike, uh, different disruptions. Uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, people working in military uh, organizations that have connections with the democratic forces. Of course, everything is secret now, maybe because you, you can't feel what's going on in our country, but it's still so alive. We have so many journalists uh, on the ground, uh, leadership in exile, but uh, people on the ground. So I, I have everyday communication with people not to lose this connection. It's not like uh, we knew uh, Belarus is not dict dictatorial regime. We don't order people what to do. They themselves take this responsibility on themselves, and you can't silence people anymore. I have a question for, for both of you, and, and this pertains to sort of the, the long-term consequence of what we're seeing now of the of the polarization of the control of information, and, and I guess particularly in Russia, where, where media is so tightly controlled, and, and where, after all, the, the information received by many ordinary Russians means that, that there is uh, at least a, a, uh, a support for, for Putin's war. Uh, is there any way that you can see that uh, that uh, Belarusians, Ukrainians, uh, and and Russians of the next generation can come together and uh, have to sort of develop a shared agenda, shared understanding of the possibility and and the need for democracy and an open debate after this war. This is of course a big question and a and a difficult one. But uh, but where, where are we now in terms of uh, of the prospects for repairing what is being damaged uh, in uh, with this current war? Svetlana first. I'm first. <laughs> I wanted to give a difficult question to Pavel. Pavel, you want to go first? And then Svetlana can think for a second. It is a very difficult question. And certainly it's much easier to envisage uh, good relations, brotherly relations between Belarus and Ukraine than, uh, than the uh, restoration of ties with Russia. The... Uh, tragedy which is unfolding in Ukraine. Yes, the, the prime responsibility is with Putin, but it's impossible to attribute everything which is happening there just to him, or even to his generals, or even to his ministers. It is a, it is a national tragedy uh, for Russia, what is happening. And in many ways, I'm much more optimistic about Ukraine's future than I'm about the future of Russia. The country needs so much hard work uh, uh, domestic work on uh, on its identity on the on its responsibility uh, which is is going to uh, take a lot of time 
And again, whether there is such time, it's very hard to say. I've mentioned how compressed the, uh, the events are. And it's much, more, much easier in many ways to uh, grant support uh, to Ukraine, to welcome Ukrainian refugees, to support Belarusian opposition, and to find ways of communication with the people of Belarus than it is presently to uh, find entry points uh, into, into Russian society, try to, try to find any anti-war movement in Russia, which is there, and I think the feelings will be gradually strengthening uh, under various impacts, uh, because the, uh, the war uh, may be presently uh, covered by many layers of uh, propaganda, but the truth will certainly come through. But I am very worried about uh, Russia's future. Uh, the country is really on the path of self-destruction. And there is a track record of that which looks horrible. And maybe as, as an introduction to, to your, uh, your answer, Svetlana, are we seeing, I mean, this might be difficult to, to say, but are we seeing uh, an increased uh, sort of um, uh, anti-Russian sentiment in any way among, uh, among people in Belarus? Is this something that they're blaming on Putin, or is it also something that you think can, can damage the relations people-to-people -people, uh, between Belarus and, and Russia? No, I have to say that, uh, of course, the war uh, divided everything to the past and to present. Because in the past, uh, in Belarus, there are absolutely no anti-Russian moves, absolutely no. Before, of course, you know, Belarusian people uh, you know, knew that Kremlin uh, is, uh, like, uh, keeping uh, Bel Belarusian regime in their hands and so on, but there were no, absolute, no uh, bad attitude to people. Now, when we see that not only government uh, is involved in this war, we see uh, how uh, Russian people react, uh, react on, on this war. Of course, propaganda uh, shows only the most negative attitude, and uh, it's the job, but, uh, and uh, according to Russian polls, about 80% of people support uh, Kremlin's decisions. That is frightening. And people in Belarus see people in Russia, and they don't understand. Do you really, can you really support this? And this attitude, step by step, is being spoiled. Uh, decisions of Kremlin spoiled relationship, good relationship between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Wonderful relationship before 2014. But now uh, I'm afraid that it is spoiled for ages. And... Uh, uh, I'm really happy that we managed to uh, to save uh, good attitude between Belarusian and, and Ukrainian people. But I think that it will take a couple of generations for Russian people to restore their good name. I hope good name in front of on, in front of uh, Ukrainians. Hmm. And this is also leading on to my next uh, question, because is, um, the, the use, especially of social media platforms, has been important for pro-democracy movements from the Balkans to the Arab Spring to Hong Kong. Uh, well, at the same time, governments have been able to keep up eventually with, uh, with the use of uh, social media platforms and our, our pressing access. Could you say something about how social media and perhaps more sort of general information strategies are used by the, uh, the, the uh, pro-democracy movement in Belarus and, uh, and also perhaps reflecting on why? Why are you succeeding in persuading Belarusians about the, uh, the, what, is, what is actually happening in Ukraine and, and the, the also the, uh, the um, support for the pro-democracy movement in a very different way than, than, uh, than uh, perhaps the pro-democracy uh, movements in, in Russia is, uh, uh, are succeeding? Um, do you have any, any thoughts about that? You know, media in uh, difficult situations, in difficult times for any country is crucial. And uh, Lukashenko knew it. And since uh, 2020, our president here deliberately started to ruin uh, Belarusian alternative media. But for this year and a half, uh, leadership of uh, all the alternative media managed to restore their activity in exile. Uh, moreover, new forms of informing people emerged, like 
people, in difficult times, people have to be creative. People started to use YouTube, Instagram, Telegram channels, TikTok, uh, all this, uh, uh, not like traditional sources of information to inform people. And for a year and a half, people got used to it. People in Belarus now to have access to alternative uh, uh, information, to true uh, truth information. Moreover, for this year and a half, we managed to uh, create a wide network of self-made newspapers in Belarus. For even those maybe old generation or people in villages who don't have access to internet also could get real, uh, real information about what's going on. So I think on informational level, we were more prepared for this war than uh, in Russia, for example, because they till the war, you know, alternative media could exist there. And they immediately have been closed in the crucial period for uh, their history, and they couldn't show uh, truth to uh, to Russian people. Of course, they uh, now are restoring their activity, but it's uh, uh, it's rather difficult to fight with uh, propaganda who uh, put millions of, of uh, euros of dollars, you know, to um, uh, to promote uh, their narrative. And in Belarus. For this year and a half, you know, people stopped, almost stopped watching TV. Even if they watch, they don't believe uh, propaganda and they know how to get real information. So it's easier for persons now to uh, to show uh, the truth about uh, about the situation. So you mentioned in your your introduction the role of uh, of art and artists, and I think that was uh, was quite intriguing. And uh, and we this is something that uh, that we've been working on uh, at Prio also for uh, for some time uh, with the Prio Center on uh, on uh, um, culture and uh, and conflict. And um, uh, I was going to ask you because we we see that that the importance of of these bottom up approaches through either music, uh, street art, uh, um, comic books. Uh, are important in many uh, in many uh, pro democracy movements and and popular uprisings all uh, over the world. Could you elaborate a little bit on uh, how this is uh, is an integrated part of the uh, pro democracy uh, campaign in uh, in Belarus? No, I think that art culture uh, is maybe the easiest way uh, to involve uh, other people into movement because. Politics is so boring, it's so not interesting, but when you see, uh, uh, you know, interesting video or movies or you read interesting books or uh, you, you see uh, different plays on the stage about situation in the country, you understand uh, context, uh, you know, it's much easier to understand context. So we really lobbying for um, supporting our cultural uh, representatives for uh, spreading Belarusian language because our culture, our identity was suppressed for many, many years by uh, Lukashenko's regime. And it's very important to uh, revive, can I say so, to, to, to revive. And uh, I, I, see, um, I see eagerness of uh, our... Uh, allies of different countries to support uh, cultural events, to support our poets and musicians. And I'm really glad that through culture, through artists, uh, art, we can promote uh, Belarus and the Belarusian position in this war and, you know, our, our, um, our fight. You know, it's very it's very effective way uh, of explaining people what's going on. Mm -hmm. And a final uh, final question to you, uh, Svetlana. Um, since you are here now in Norway, meeting with dignitaries, I know you'll be meeting both with the uh, with the prime minister and uh, and the um, uh, parliamentary committee for for foreign affairs. Um, what is the single most important thing that Norway, as a, as a country, as a society, as a people, can do to support pro democracy movement in uh, in uh, Belarus and? Um, increase the chances of uh, of a future transition to democracy. So, first of all, I'm really grateful to Norway for uh, the support we got, we have been gotten for this year and a half, even 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 before. Thanks to Norway, uh, international accountability platform was organized, where. Uh, we collect all the evidences of Lukashenko's crimes and uh, we believe that one day he will be brought to justice because of these crimes. Uh, 
a lot of media and uh, human rights defending centers um, get support from uh, Norwegian government, and it's you know it's it's, it's crucial at the moment. So here we have told that it's very important to be consistent at the moment. So on the one hand, it's very important to isolate Lukashenko economically, politically, uh, not to recognize him as, as Norway didn't recognize him before, so be consistent. On the other hand, to support civil society, to support media, support uh, initiatives, organizations that create multiple points of pressure on the regime. So our task now is to exhaust regime and to strengthen uh, people. And uh, Norway is uh, very supportive. And it's very important to keep Belarus on agenda. Uh, now uh, the focus has shifted on Ukraine. It's understandable. We also support Ukraine at every political meeting we have. Uh, but uh, who, if not us, will uh, tell about the situation in Belarus, about political prisoners, about tortures and atrocities in jails, about uh, lawlessness in our country. So it's, um, uh, I ask to uh, organize uh, any event uh, on the basis of UN security in, in UN Security Council about Belarus. It's important that we are uh, being heard and uh, it was accepted, of course, positive. I see the eagerness of uh, uh, Norwegian government to help us, to assist. Uh, so these two aspects like, uh, uh, will help us to keep strong until this transition period will come. And uh, uh, with the support of uh, Norway, we'll be able to, at last, bring our country to democratic changes. Thank you so much, Svetlana, for a very engaging lecture, and thank you both for engaging so thoroughly with uh, with the questions uh, posed. I uh, think it's quite clear to all of us that we are now at a, at a critical juncture in uh, European history when it comes to uh, to the uh, fight for um, for democracy and, and basic human rights. And I think uh, fair to say that developments in Belarus also very fundamentally contribute to shape this future trajectory of, uh, of democracy in the uh, continent. So all of all the best of luck in your non-violent campaign for basic human and, and civil rights in Belarus. Uh, we'll give her a big hand of applause. I just want to say, please uh, then uh, remain seated until we've been able to, to exit the room. Uh, but uh, thank you again so much, Svetlana, for coming and for engaging.